0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at
1: night. Hello, hello. I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. Today, the International Court of Justice, also known as the ICJ, found that it is plausible that Israel has committed acts of genocide in Gaza. The courts gave this order. The court is also of the view that Israel must take measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit
0: genocide in relation to the members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip.
1: To be clear, the courts are demanding Israel prevent genocide. It did not find Israel guilty of genocide. And there is currently no order for a ceasefire in the region. The ICJ is requiring Israel submit a report to the court within a month to explain what has been done to uphold its orders. Some of which includes allowing humanitarian aid into the Strip and taking more measures to protect Palestinians. And this... Preventing genocide was a core part of the case brought to the ICJ by South Africa's legal team. They know that to
2: make a ruling of genocide is quite complicated. Certain features have to be present. South Africa, in anticipating how difficult it is to prove a genocide, added other elements to its case. And these elements
1: are failure to prevent a genocide. So they're not just saying. This is Reedy Kalabi an award-winning broadcast journalist from South Africa who covers international affairs, has a master's in international relations, and has been following the case closely. I spoke to her about the case earlier this week, and I am so glad I did because she laid out the significance of South Africa, of all countries, bringing this case to court and how the history of each nation, South Africa and Israel, is factoring into this moment. Reedy, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here, Brittany. Oh, so happy to have you. So we're talking about South Africa's case against Israel at the ICJ, but to zoom out a bit, you called out what you see as a hierarchy of pain playing out on the world stage in this moment. What did you mean by hierarchy of pain when it comes to this case?
2: What I mean by hierarchy of pain is that we use atrocities. To demonstrate that my pain is bigger than yours, therefore I deserve more solidarity and more freedom to do as I please. This is in international relations. And when it comes to Israel, I think that even when it is being asked to account, the thing that it does is remind us of the Holocaust, something we should not forget. We should not forget the Holocaust. It was the systemic butchering of Jews while the world looked the other way. As painful as that history is, it is not a license to commit future atrocities. And Israel should not be allowed to say, our people suffered, therefore don't judge us today. Our pain is greater than any pain visited upon anybody. You cannot tell me that this global phenomenon of racism and oppression, that we must now have subcategories within it to say that one was worse than the other, as though the world's empathy and the world's intervention needs to be commensurate with your claim of
1: how large the abuse visited upon your people are. Hmm, Hmm. If we're going off that notion, I guess I wonder, how does South Africa's history of apartheid influence this case?
2: South Africa is a small country, Which became famous for many reasons, one of them being that it successfully came out of the yoke of apartheid, not without losses, not without pain, not without compromise and negotiation, not without bloodshed. We came out of it's the 30th anniversary of South Africa's democracy, and we prevented Hmm. a civil war precisely because we recognized that to reverse the injustices of racial oppression, you can't destroy the race that was responsible for that oppression. Because The oppression was institutional, it was legislative, and it permeated every area of our lives. But we need each other. We are citizens of the same country. And it doesn't follow that in an architecture of apartheid and oppression, there are no allies in the white community. So we had to work together as a country because to seek vengeance because of any form of oppression, therein lies your own demise. So if black Mm -hmm. South Africans had just gone And committed revenge, as it were We would have no country left So negotiations are about give and take And the Middle East needs that solution Sharing land, sharing uh, the political space Sharing autonomy and freedoms And South Africa believes that is possible So it is significant that South Africa is the country That took this case to the ICG Precisely because it has experienced apartheid And we know the cost of such oppression The second thing, Brittany And this is what Mm -hmm. the international community needs to understand South Africans did not topple apartheid by themselves. We needed governments to support our anti-apartheid movement. So it's important that people understand that international solidarity helped to fund apartheid. It helped to destroy apartheid. So it would be quite hypocritical from us as South Africa Who built a democracy based on human solidarity and international solidarity to sit by and watch when apartheid or genocide is being committed? So, from that historical point
1: of view, this case brought by South Africa is significant. You've described Israel as having a long standing relationship with South Africa that goes back through apartheid. Can you share what that relationship looked like? When it came to supporting the anti apartheid
2: movement, officially they said they opposed the apartheid system, while privately, It cultivated relations with South Africa. When it came to nuclear technology, Israel shared information with the apartheid government by sharing or Israel gifting the South African government with bomb technology. You may say countries share technology all the time. Why would you share technology with a country or a government that is oppressing the majority of its citizens and the majority of the citizens are black. Where do you think they're going to use those bombs? Now, in South Africa, we had a prime minister who was called the architect of apartheid. Part of what built that architecture was dispossession. Black citizens were dispossessed as land was taken in the interest of apartheid and what we call homelands, where people were uh, marginalized according to their class and according to their tribe. So apartheid's apparatus was exactly that dispossession. That is why land is such an emotive issue in South Africa today, because restitution hasn't happened. And we have a huge Jewish population in South Africa, many of whom also fought against apartheid. So it's important that we don't do an us versus them.
1: Hmm. You draw some really interesting comparisons between South Africa's apartheid state and the current conflict as well as the historical conflict between Israel and Palestine. Has Israel appeared in front of the ICJ before when it comes to Palestine? It would not
2: be the first time that the ICJ rules against Israel. When it came to the wall in the West Bank, the ICJ made a previous ruling years ago. It said that Israel's wall was illegal. It also said That the occupier cannot claim self defense in a territory that it
1: occupies. Bearing all of this in mind, as of now, and again, we're talking before any ruling has been reached, what was Israel's response to these accusations of committing and failing to prevent genocide? Like, talk to me about Israel's response within the ICJ.
2: Israel, of course, it was expected to reject these accusations. They said it was unfounded, it was absurd. And it was amounting to libel. And they went on to say that they seek to protect their people and and, and so on. But subsequently, the rhetoric has become condescending and insulting, if you ask me. Why do I say that? The Minister of Foreign Affairs of Israel said that South Africa's lawyers were the legal arm of Hamas and said they are legal representatives of Hamas. Now, it's important that we talk about this because that seems to be Israel's modus operandi. So that has been the response from Israel, which is not helpful. They ought to answer to those charges and let this uh, august house called the ICG deal with the matter. Insults are not going to change the course of history.
1: Well, Reedy, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this. This is extremely important and very, very timely. Thank you so very much, Brittany. Thank you for inviting me. That was South African broadcaster Reedy Kalabi. Kalabi and I spoke before the ICJ's ruling that Israel must prevent genocide. And since then, leaders of both countries have responded. Here's South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa. Earlier
2: today, the International Court of Justice in The Hague, in the Netherlands, issued a ruling that is a victory for international law, for human rights, and above all, for justice.
1: And in a video statement, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that while Israel's commitment to international law is unwavering, Israel will continue to defend itself. Like every country, Israel has an inherent right to defend itself. The vile attempt to deny Israel this fundamental right is blatant discrimination against the Jewish state, and it was justly rejected. Prime Minister Netanyahu also called the genocide charges false, saying that decent people should reject it, and ended his speech with this. We will continue to facilitate humanitarian assistance and to do our utmost to keep civilians out of harm's way, even as Hamas uses civilians as human shields. As per the court ruling, Israel will have one month to report back on what's been done to uphold the court order to protect Palestinians and prevent genocide. Coming up, we turn to television's obsession with cults and whether that says anything about where we are in history right now.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.
1: Now we're going to totally shift gears because I want to turn to something that seems to be on a lot of our minds out there. Cults. Now... We do watch cult documentaries in my house, my husband loves them, but there are so many cult documentaries that I think they can be considered their own genre. After all, they've got similar plot points and feature a predictable array of characters like the bewildered parents, the tearful ex-members, and the weird creepy leader who everyone swears is charismatic. And that's not to say there isn't variety in the genre, I mean, if you want a love cult, try escaping twin flames. You want a sex cult, there's the vow. You want reincarnation, try Love Has Won. Celebrities, watch Going Clear. I mean, I could go on and I am not even listing the podcasts. Over the past few years, you could
0: say cult media has gained a cult following. More people are talking about how they love cults than ever before. That's the interesting part. People saying things like, what's your favorite cult, is a mind-blowing statement.
1: That's Dr. Palomi Saha. They're an associate professor of English at University of California, Berkeley, and co-director of the program in Critical Theory. They teach a class about cults in pop culture. They're going to school us on cults in America, how we define them, why we're fascinated by them, and why some of us actually join them.
0: Professor Saha, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here.
1: Oh my gosh, my pleasure, my pleasure. We're here today to talk about cults. To get us started, in America we have freedom of religion, but how does that freedom factor into how cults are formed in the United States?
0: So if you think about religion in America, Mm -hmm. we have freedom of religion. It's the basis of this nation state in some ways. right? But there is a kind of promise that whatever you practice, you practice in private. Hmm. You do it in church, in congregation, at um. home. Absolutely. So one of the ways in which we see the cult as a thing that emerges in America is usually when a particular kind of spiritual practice mm-hmm. ends up in the public. People appear and they're different. They're not acting the way we're supposed to. You know, um, Often, when we see documentaries or hear podcasts on cults, people will talk about the look that you can just tell by the look on people's faces that they're in a cult. Hmm. And what is that look? If you kind of try, I was just going to ask, what is that look? It's often kind of blissed out Uh looking outward. So it's this way of being in the world in which you don't appear and I'm here in New York so I'm really thinking about how people appear outside. If you walk <laughs> oh, yeah, down right. the street in New York, everyone is kind of looking either down or straight ahead and they're mm-hmm. barreling by and they're fully mm-hmm. contained. They don't want to know about you, they don't want you to know about them. You're just they're trying to yeah, you're trying to get through life. Mm-hmm. When you have someone who has that look They want you to know that something has happened. They are porous to you. They want you to be porous to them. They Mm. refuse to live in space the way that we're supposed to. And when we see those people, often, not always, but often, our first instinct is to be like, whoa, what's going on? Mm. We've been trained to be particular kinds of people. And then you have these groups that disrupt our social equilibrium. Hmm. Hmm. That is
1: so, 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 so interesting. I hadn't thought about a cult in that way as as being a group of people or often appearing as a group of people who are disrupting our social contract and disrupting our sort of cultural norms by performing or experiencing their Belief system, or their let's say relationship with God, or their religion in in public in a way that like uh captures attention. What makes us see some groups of people and think, oh, these people are just religious, and other groups of people and think, oh, these people are in a cult?
0: Brittany, it's such a good question, and my answer is so boring. In the end, there is a single arbiter of religion in America, a single body that decides whether or not something is a religion or, say, a cult or um, uh, just a, a community. Do you know what that body is?
1: I mean, I have a, a guess, but I—okay, I, okay, I want to say it's the IRS. Yes. But my thought is that since nobody can tell you what your religion is, let's say I wanted to be like, oh, I'm going to start a cult. I got all these listeners. <laughs> I'm going to start a cult, right? Right. Uh, my thought is I could just say, oh, this is the Church of Brittany, and I could go to the government and be like, I have a church. We have, we got X amount of listeners every week. Like, I need tax exemption or whatever.
0: So here's the thing. So you can go to the IRS and say, you know, we're a, a religious body, and we're looking for recognition for non for nonprofit status. Fine. Right. You'll probably get it. Now, if I say, I am suspicious of your practices, and I think, actually, what's happening inside the Church of Brittany is hinky, I can go to the IRS and say, actually, I don't believe they're a real church. You need to investigate their practices and strip them of their tax-exempt status. This is often where then you have groups and churches that enter into a kind of scandal That's what makes them the cult. It's not that the IRS will say it's a cult. It's that we out there in the world are like, wait a second, what's going on over there? Scandal, cult. And once you have the word cult, it's so useful in some ways for something like tabloids, but for us as consumers of gossip and information and popular culture, because cult gives us then a whole narrative. We then know exactly what to expect. There's a the moment of looking for the escape. And that's the thing about cults. There is a story built into cults in which when you are in a cult, you lose yourself. Wow. Wow. That's the real danger, right? Right. So when someone breaks out and they're returned to themselves, we, again, trained to be people who want to be individual and sovereign and rational and thinking are like, congratulations on returning to yourself.
1: Coming up, Professor Saha lays out how 1950s conformity led to the 1960s cult boom.
0: The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable.
3: Not when you have the indicator of our in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop?
0: What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas
3: suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to the indicator from Planet Money and NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my god,
1: I've been there, and you can identify with it.
3: For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. These days,
1: news comes at you fast. But the truth... Getting there takes time.
2: There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the
1: time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. So when it comes to cults, not all cults, I have been very fascinated by this pattern. It seems like a lot of the cults in the U.S. seem to be groups of white Westerners appropriating Eastern traditions or religious practices.
0: Mm-hmm. Why
1: does that appropriation factor so heavily into so many cults in America?
0: Well, this is my current book project. <laughs> it starts actually, I think, in the kind of early settler colonial moment. And I can kind of pinpoint at least one example, which is a set of conversations in writing between Thomas Jefferson and uh, and John Adams. and they talk about how they've been reading everything they could find on the Vedas and on Hindu scripture. Except they're not reading anything in Sanskrit, obviously, because they can't read Sanskrit. They're not even reading the British translations of the German translations. No, they're reading these American theologians who are mostly reading a kind of hodgepodge of this and making it up. Oh, my god! They're writing these books in which they're kind of self-synthesizing stuff that they've read. So
1: it's like they're basically doing, like, like the old-fashioned version of, like, oh, we're going to base <laughs> books and our concept of Eastern religion <laughs> off of Wikipedia. <laughs> like.
0: But, yeah, but also what suits us, what we think is interesting oh to us— You look at a lot of these groups that claim, you know, Eastern origins, almost always they are homegrown. They begin in America, and they begin usually with a smart, charismatic leader who understood that most Americans aren't going to come for a traditional religious practice. Religion is hard. It comes with all kinds of things. It comes with history. It comes with ritual. What if you could get rid of all of that? Get rid of all the heavy stuff. Get rid of the having to read scripture. What if someone just gave you the good stuff? That is, and this is what I think is kind of perennially interesting to an American audience, the possibility of transcendence. The possibility that your individual being isn't the end-all be-all and there isn't some discrete other thing out there, God, that is separate from you. It's a super, super compelling idea, especially when you have a country of individuals who have been told, right, remember we're circling right back, to be contained and rational Mm. and private all the Mm -hmm. time. And this one leader will offer you again, a very simple, often secret key to transcendence. And you have access to it. It's so simple. Why wouldn't you take it? So we see over and over again, people taking advantage of what's on offer to them, which is usually very simple, very compelling paths to enlightenment. That is so interesting.
1: I mean, I think for a lot of people, and myself included, like our social understanding of history of cults in like modern day America, I feel like dates back to like the 60s. Yes. Why was the
0: 60s such a ripe time for cults? Part of the logic of the 1960s and the countercultural movement was that we had been anesthetized as a nation state. And it came out of really a kind of post war. Malaise. So America's making a ton of money. And part of what's really being kind of cultivated in this moment is a form of absolute conformity. You can have all of those things, the two-car garage and the white picket fence and, you know, a good job. Just fit in. Just, hmm. you know, go to your nine-to-five, do your job, clock in, clock out, come home to your you know, heteronormative family, your spouse, your two children, and anything that happens to you, keep inside that nice suburban house. So it's a time of extraordinary conformity. You then have young people who are going to college, and we have this boom um, of people going to college, who are looking around at their parents, at their grandparents, and they're like, Mm -hmm. what are you doing? what is it all for? You go every day and you work and you make money, but what's it for? Yeah, who you, like are a you lack of purpose. Yeah. Yes. So this is really what drives the kind of countercultural movement. You have smart young people who are looking and they're like, things are not okay. And everyone who seems to have power is like, no, no, be quiet, make money, go home. And so young people break out. They break out into things like communes. There's all kinds of new social forms or new politics. But then you have all of these leaders who appear as if summoned, and they're like, you're right. No one gets it. No one gets it, but I do. I can offer Mm. you a way out. And that way out is often just so compelling. If you look at the kind of basis of those 1960s cults, what they're offering sounds not so bad. You don't want to have a kind of boring 9-to-5 job. Come live on this shared piece of land. You don't want to have to deal with the daily drudgery and often the unpaid drudgery. If you were a woman of domestic mm. work, well, you know what? We don't have, you know, a, a person who goes out and makes money and a person who works at home. We're all going to share I the mean, labor. All
1: doing, yeah, we're all going to share the load. Yeah.
0: Heteronormity is, so... is is difficult. We're not interested in those kinds of sexual strictures. Right. Monogamy. Monogamy
1: we don't. Yeah, don't is worry that working about it. for you?
0: <laughs> yeah. It seems to offer a solution to everything. So In this moment of kind of crisis, people turned to radical alternatives. I think we're looking at radical alternatives today, too, because we're, again, in a moment of crisis, a different one. But I don't think it's a coincidence that suddenly we have all of these documentaries and podcasts about cults in a moment at which the world is on fire.
1: Mm, yeah. No, it's like you said, cults are a part of popular culture right now. I mean, everybody's talking about them. One of our producers on the team told me that he's seen on dating apps a number of people saying on their profiles that they would join a cult. Yes. Anything you're putting on a dating profile, you're throwing out there as something that you think is going to reel them in. You know what I mean? Yes. So like, I don't know. That feels like its own cultural shift, right? You said before that America makes it extremely hard to belong and that subcultures offer a chance at radical acceptance. And I had to kind of pause for a second and sit with that idea because I think in a way that that's true. But in some ways, there is something about cults that make me think about people uh, that are hungry for the communal. It seems like some cults, in a way, are preying upon the human drive to work together with other people to fix things.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's really important for us to separate the leader, often a charismatic individual, from people who are followers. I think they work in different ways. People who join these communities are almost always hungry for something that is missing in their lives. Hmm. And I think that that longing is important for us to keep in mind so that we don't fall into the trap of the cult story.
1: Well, Professor Saha, thank you so much. I I really enjoyed this conversation. Now you've got me looking at everything differently.
0: Well, I had so much fun. Thanks so much for having me.
1: That was UC Berkeley professor Palomi Saha. Their current book project, Fascination, America's Hindu Cults, considers the allure and scandal of so-called Hindu cults in America. Hey, Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. It's Declan from New York. Oscar nominations came out this week and people are pulling their hair out over it. I'm just wondering what you're making of all usual discourse around it. Anyways, love the show. Zach Glenn. thank you so much for calling in with this question. Oh my gosh. I'll start off by saying I'm not going to be one of these people that's going to be like a Debbie Downer about the Oscar nominations. I understand the weight that they can hold within somebody's industry, like how consequential they can be. It is exciting to see someone get recognition for work that really was extremely well done. However, I got to get into the Barbie of it all. I saw it in the theater. I had a good time. It was fun. I thought that they came up with a really inventive way to think about a doll and how to make a narrative out of a doll. Everyone's throwing around this word, snub this, snub that. When I think about Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore, Charles Melton, their performances in May, December, I think about Todd Haynes' direction. Shout out Todd Haynes. That, to me, is a snub. Tiana Taylor did a phenomenal job in 1001. It would have been great to see her nominated for Best Actress. Anjanou Ellis in Origin would have been great. Greta Lee in Past Lives would have been great. I could do this all day. Barbie got nominated for eight Academy Awards. Eight. Does that sound like a snub to you? Perhaps the movie was better produced than it was directed. Perhaps the movie was structured in a way that made Ken the more dynamic character than Barbie. Was the movie so good such that people need to be crying and bleeding out all over social media, losing their minds because Greta Gerwig wasn't nominated for Best Director, an award she has been nominated for before? Is there any reason for Hillary Clinton? Did she need to put out a statement talking about how Barbie got snug? I don't think any of that was necessary. Margot Robbie didn't get nominated Because there were five other women that the voters felt like needed to be nominated in the Best Actress category. Ryan Gosling didn't steal nothing from her. He didn't steal anything from her. He was good in the movie. But all this, like, we're going to war. Like, Braveheart over a movie about a doll. Let's back up. Because you know who else from Barbie was nominated for an Oscar? America Ferreira. As one of the few Latinas to be nominated in an acting category for an Oscar. Nominated. Like, she's one of... Less than 15 in history. Those accomplishments are being overshadowed. It's not just about these two talented, blonde, white women. There's more out there. There's more to feminism and more to life than just Barbie. Anyway, thank you so much, Declan. I hope you have a great weekend. And next week, y'all, I don't want to hear no more about this. Okay, case closed. If you have a thought or question about pop culture, send us a voice memo at ibam at npr. Dot org. That's I-B-A-M at NPR.org. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood Alexis Williams Liam McBain Corey Antonio Rose This episode was edited by
3: Jessica Plachek Bilal Qureshi
1: Engineering support came from Stacey Abbott
3: Robert Rodriguez
1: We have fact-checking help from Susie Cummings Barkley Walsh Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at betterhelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month.
0: Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR.